Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When bad things happen to us, we want to forget them. And when good things happen, we want to remember those things and cherish those things. The problem is it usually works just the opposite. Right? The good things that happen, the, the things that fill you with joy and euphoria, and you tell yourself, I'll never forget this moment. When you try to recall it and recollect it, something is missing. And yet, those events in your life that you always wanted to forget, it's crazy the way you can go back and not only remember the day and the hour, but as you do that, the feeling of it comes back as well. It's like you're right back there experiencing that pain all over again. You try that with the joy, though. You meditate on the happy things, the, the wonderful things, the celebrations, and the feeling does not come back so easily. It is not so easily recaptured. Sometimes it feels like it's impossible to recreate the joy of those moments and and experience it again. You've heard me say before, some people think that the hardest part of the Christian life is the call to obedience, but that's not right. The hardest part of the Christian life is the call to joy. There are a lot of obedient people who lack joy. Joy is the hard thing because joy is so difficult to rediscover. And why do we lack joy? I think it's because our sins and our sufferings are a lot easier to bring to mind than our blessings. We hear the good news of the gospel. We hear it repeated over and over and over again. And yet the joy of that deliverance is not so easy to feel again. The doctrine of salvation becomes fixed in our mind, but sometimes the doctrine is not accompanied by the joy of salvation. I don't mean that we need to forget the doctrine. Obviously, the doctrine is important. The doctrine is essential, but doctrine, which is just another word for teaching, is always a means to an end. It's important to get the doctrine of salvation right But the reason that it's important is to protect the reality of salvation. And the reality of salvation is meant to be joyous. It's meant to be joyous. The doctrine of salvation that Paul is working through and digging into here in Romans 4 may sound to you like a kind of Uh, abstract theological exposition. But Paul never does theology just for the sake of doing theology. Like he addresses the head in order to address the heart. And the thing that we need to remember as we look at the doctrine of salvation is that the doctrine is meant to remind us of the reality of the salvation that we have in Christ. There is good news. There is joy to be found in a text like this. Paul is saying to us, if you share Abraham's faith, then you are one of his children. 
If you share Abraham's faith and you are one of his children and you are an heir to the promises that are made to him, and that's true whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised. If you follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, then you are one of his children. But Paul has already established in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that justification, salvation, comes by faith apart from works. And that that's how salvation works for all of us. No matter what kindred, what tribe, that is the way salvation works. Justification is always by faith apart from works. And because it's by faith instead of works, none of us, no matter who we are, have anything to boast about. There's no foundation on which we can rise up and feel proud and feel better and superior to other people. That's what Paul is telling us. And now he's taking that understanding and he's going to go back in history. And he's going to test this doctrine against the history that is recorded in the book of Genesis. He's taking the historical example of Abraham in order to check his work. Remember, Paul has never been saying that now it's the new covenant and salvation works differently in the New Covenant than it does in the Old. In fact, it's just the opposite. What he's saying is salvation works the same way in the New Covenant as it did in the Old, only much more has been revealed about the workings of salvation now. We know much more. Salvation, justification, has always been by faith apart from works. And the purpose of the law was never to save us. And that's why Abraham is such an important figure to look at. It's the reason why it's Abraham that Paul goes back to here in our text. Because Abraham is the father of the covenant people. right? He is the father of those people. In John chapter 6, when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, their claim is that they are sons of Abraham. It means something to be part of that covenant community. Abraham is the head of of that, the one who received the promises. And so Paul is asking, how exactly did Abraham acquire that justification? How did salvation work for the father of this covenant? That's what he wants to find out. And it turns out the way Abraham was saved fits the way Paul describes salvation, not the way his critics do. Abraham's case fits Paul's gospel best. Remember, if justification was by works, you'd have something to boast about. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I mean, before God and the power of God, no one can boast. We're all in awe of his presence. But if you had earned your salvation through your work, then of course you'd have something, you'd have a merit that you could point to. You'd have something to be proud of. That's how it works. If you achieve something by works, you have reason to boast, reason to be proud. And because of Abraham's preeminence, because of his heroic stature, of all people, you would expect Abraham to have achieved something. You don't become a hero by doing nothing. right? You do something heroic. And that's what makes you a hero. That's what makes you the founder of a dynasty. It's that that makes it possible for there to be a vast inheritance that you can pass down to your children. 
So what did Abraham do? It would be tempting for us to think of him as having accomplished some great work, and if he had, then he would have good reason to be proud. But as always, you have to check those assumptions against Scripture. Paul says, Abraham is wonderful. You guys who boast, you boast in the fact that you're children of Abraham. Well, let's take a look at Abraham and let's see if he achieves something that is worthy of bragging about. What does the Scripture say, Paul says? And then he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Scripture doesn't say that Abraham earned his righteousness. It says that it was counted to him as righteousness. The Greek word there for count is logizomai, which means count or think or regard or hold. Like if you hold these truths to be self-evident, you are counting them to be significant in that way. Uh, To count in this sense is like to attribute a property to something else. I I assess that this is the case. I count that it is worthy in this way. Um, You guys from the upper Midwest, you don't have the range of English that we've created down south, but in the south, we actually have an English word that captures really well the, the range of meaning here, and it's reckon. I know sometimes you think things, but in the south, we reckon them. You say, I think that's right. We're like, I reckon that's right. And you say it in that way, and it always sounds like, but it could also not be. Right? There's always a little skepticism in the southern mind about these things. But I reckon so. But reckoning can also mean counting, literally. Like you can reckon up the bill. Right? You add up the numbers. I, I can't do that so well, but some of you can, can add up the numbers really well. That's a kind of reckoning as well. And it captures the, the elasticity of the term. In Scripture, this is sometimes translated as as counting, which has that numerical quality to it in English, but sometimes also to holding, to, to, you know, taking something to be true about someone else. It's flexible in that way. So Paul does what what it's always helpful to do when you use a term that, that has a flexibility of meaning. He explains what he means by giving examples. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So counting in this context for Paul, um, he gives the example of wages, the way wages work. Right? If you go to work and you clock out and your employer gives you a check and says, I'm going to count that as a gift. You'd say, well, actually, no. It's not counted. It is owed. Right? You owe me the money. You're not doing me a favor by paying me for my work. I have earned this. And I've earned it. So the money that you make for the work that you do, that's not counted to you in the sense that Paul is talking about. That is owed to you. It is paid out because you have worked for it. You've earned it. But that's not what happens when when righteousness is counted to us. Righteousness isn't counted to you as a just reward. It's interesting here when he talks about counting, he associates counting with with gifting. It is counted as a gift. So counting is not like earning wages. It's more like receiving a gift. 
Then he goes on in the, the next sentence to uh, change the analogy. So on the one hand, he says, if you worked for it, then it's not a gift. But then he says, if you didn't work, then it can only be a gift. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's counted. He didn't earn it. He's not being handed righteousness because it is due. It is being given to him as a gift. It's being counted as righteousness because it's not righteousness. It's counted that way. There's two things Paul's not saying here, and, and these are things it's important to, to avoid, assumptions it's important to avoid. He's not saying that the act of faith itself constitutes righteousness. He's not saying that God realized that, that no one in their sin is capable of real righteousness, so he decided, I'm going to lower the bar, and from now on, I'm going to pretend that having faith is righteousness, and we'll just count that as righteousness. That's not what he's saying. It's being counted as righteousness because it isn't righteousness. Right? The real righteousness is Christ's, and it is being counted to us as a gift. So he's also not saying that your faith makes you actually personally righteous, that, that the act of faith changes me from an unrighteous to a perfectly righteous person. It's that the perfect righteousness of Christ is given as a gift. We continue to struggle to be righteous in the process of sanctification, but we are declared righteous in that act of justification. Lastly, note this. It does matter who you believe in. This gift, Paul says, is given to him who justifies, who has faith in him who justifies the ungodly. So it's not faith in general. It's not just being a, an optimistic person, a hopeful person. He's speaking specifically of faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what justifies. The interesting thing is, though, in Christ there is a counting, but there's also a not counting. Something is counted if you are in Christ, but also something is not counted. You see this when he quotes Psalm 32 here. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he's doing the same thing he did earlier in, in citing Genesis. He's now going back to Psalm 32. So he's checking what he's saying against Scripture. He's demonstrating that what he's saying is consistent with Scripture. It's consistent with what's spoken by Moses about Abraham. And it is consistent with what David speaks in the psalm about salvation as well. And there are two countings here, a positive and a negative counting. In the preface to the quote, he says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's a positive counting of righteousness apart from works. But if you read the psalm, the last line of the psalm says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So on the positive side, there's, there's a counting or an imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. When we have faith, the righteousness of Christ is counted to us. And that's a blessing, Paul says. But there's another blessing that David mentions, a, a, a non-counting. If Christ's righteousness is imputed to those who have faith in him, 
It is also true that the weight of their own sin is not counted to them, is not imputed to them. Christ's righteousness is imputed to you, and your own sin is not imputed if you have faith. And if not, the reverse is the case. Apart from Christ, then there is no righteousness counted to you. But there is something counted to you, and that is the weight of your sin. Those who are in Christ can stand before God covered by the righteousness of Christ counted them, and not carrying the weight of their own sin, which is not imputed to them. Those who stand apart from Christ come before God with none of the righteousness and all of the sin. And the question that Paul has is this. Was Abraham counted righteous before or after his circumcision? And this is the key. Because remember, there's another way of, of talking about the distance between Jew and Gentile. And it's the terms the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So the question is, on what side of that line was Abraham when righteousness was counted to him? Was he one of the circumcised or was he one of the uncircumcised? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So if you go back in history and you look at the way this worked with Abraham, you find that in Genesis 15, when he believes and it is counted to him as righteousness, that happens before his circumcision. Before, when he was technically one of the uncircumcised. And he received his circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. That's interesting. You'll sometimes hear me describe the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace, covenant is a fancy word for promise. So the promise of grace that is made to us, this is a promise that comes for him. Like all the nations will be blessed through him. There will be this, this progeny that is, is impossible to count. This is a promise of grace, the Abrahamic covenant. And it comes to him prior to circumcision, which comes afterwards as a seal of the promise, exactly in the way that we speak of the sacraments as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. The sign is given as a seal of the righteousness that Abraham already possessed by faith. The act of circumcision is not what justified him. Receiving the sign is not what gave him the righteousness. He possessed that righteousness that had been counted him already when he received the sign. Because the reality comes before the sign. Not always temporarily. Not always in time, but always in reality. The reality precedes 
the sign, and the sign points back to it. You can think of examples that seem to contradict this. Circumcision is a great one, right? People are circumcised in the Old Covenant when they are born, and this happens in the vast majority of cases, apart from maybe a few hypothetical allusions in Scripture. This happens prior to any faith that they could confess. So in that sense, you would say, oh, no. The sign came before the reality, and in time, sometimes it works that way. But in terms of priority, it never works that way. You may receive the sign before you possess the reality, but the sign always points to the reality, to the reality, calls us to the reality. Paul's point here is not... It's wrong to get circumcised until you have faith. It's wrong to receive the sign prior to having faith. But of course, God, when he institutes the sign of circumcision, it works exactly the other way. The point that he's trying to illustrate is that Abraham, the father of this covenant community, possessed the promised righteousness. It was counted to him before he received the sign. He was still uncircumcised. So how could we distinguish between one another and hold others in contempt because we've received the sign and they haven't received the sign because the reality, receiving the reality is what matters. There is a purpose here. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So all who believe, all who believe have righteousness counted to them and are children of Abraham. If they're not circumcised in flesh, they're still his children because by faith they are circumcised in the heart. They possess the circumcision of the heart, the reality that the outward sign points to. If they are circumcised in flesh, but do not walk in the faith of Abraham, then they are not his children. So it's possible for the opposite to be true as well, to receive the sign, but not to walk in the faith and not to be what you think you are. Paul summarizes this in Galatians 3. The book of Galatians in certain sections really parallels the teaching of Romans 4. This is Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All throughout this discourse, Paul has been undermining the differences we use to separate ourselves from one another. And instead has been preaching a unity between Jew and Gentile, a unity that is a bond created by faith. And now we see that this is a a faith that includes a imputed righteousness that unites us all together as well. We aren't righteous 
and our own powers, by our own work, so that we have something to boast about, to be proud of, but we have the righteousness of Christ, and we are together in that. All those who walk in the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham and have a right to the promises that have been made to him. So there is no separation. There is no reason to uh, draw apart. We are united in this faith if we are in Christ. When you think about that, there are a few things that you will realize. If you reflect on what it is that Paul is saying, there are a few points that I think are important to see. First of all, this is really simple, but, but I think this is always a point worth making. Um, it matters what the Bible actually says. People have a lot of deeply held convictions and ideas about what is right, what is theologically correct, that sort of thing. Uh, some of those ideas they would be willing to die for, to, to kill for, to inflict injury upon. They're so important, these distinctions. But what matters, what makes something true is not how deeply felt it is. What makes it true is not the fact that, that generations of us before have believed exactly the same thing. What makes it true and reliable is that it's what the Bible teaches. Now, the question is, and here's a deep philosophical question for you, like how would I find out? How would I know what the Bible teaches and what it doesn't teach? Right, we talked earlier about what are angels. And I think as you hear a description of what the Bible teaches about angels, you realize that, that maybe 90% of what we know about angels is not in the Bible. It's, it's been added on and embellished and that sort of thing. It may be that, that when a bell rings, it doesn't mean an angel gets his wings. And as long, you don't want to uh, turn your back on, on some sentimental belief that, that, that has been beautifully expressed. And yet, if you're wondering, like, what is actually true, the Bible could tell you that. And the way that you would find out is, is to read it. Getting pretty deep here, but, but the way to find out the contents of a book is actually to, to read it. And as simple as that is, I would say this is like the solution to, to a lot of the problems that we have, that people have very deeply held beliefs about a book they have hardly read. And a lot of those beliefs are second, third hand passed down. So, number one, if, if we want to be Pauline in our Christianity, maybe we could learn a lesson from Paul and what he does when he articulates his doctrine he then goes back to Scripture, and, and he says, see, here it is. Here it is. In surprising ways sometimes, revealing that, that what he's teaching is what you find in Scripture. He goes to Scripture as his authority. A lot of the things that you object to in the Bible, a lot of things you struggle with, the things that seem craziest, some of them aren't actually there. I periodically have conversations with people about the abhorrent teachings of Scripture that are not actually teachings of Scripture. There are a lot of widespread misconceptions. I'm not saying that everything in Scripture is easy. It's not. But there's widespread ignorance of what the Bible actually values and what its emphases really are. And the only way to overcome that is to read it. Now, I understand that people who read the Bible don't always agree on what it says. I'm not saying if you just open the book and read it, everything will be clear. 
In the Westminster Standards, it says nothing will be clear apart from the illumination of the spirits. There's a supernatural component to this, but it's got to start somewhere. I think in light of the way that Paul argues, none of us really have an excuse for our ignorance of Scripture. So that's one thing. It matters what the Bible actually teaches. And to be able to tell the difference between what it actually says and and what we think it does. Secondly, if you are Abraham's children, then follow in the steps of faith. If you're Abraham's children, then follow in the steps of his faith. As I said earlier in John chapter 6, it was a boast. We are children of Abraham. We do what our father does. And Jesus, if you remember when we went through John 6, Jesus replies this, well, yeah, you do what your father does, but it's not Abraham. Your father is actually the devil. Jesus was not good at pulling his punches, but you get the idea. Like there's a a proud boast to be children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not children of Abraham because you do what Abraham did not do. You don't do what Abraham did. You may possess the signs. You may make the claims, the boast. But do you walk in the faith of Abraham? You walk in the faith of Abraham. And if the answer to that is no, stop boasting. And if you do walk in the faith, the answer is also stop boasting as well, but in a different way. Do you walk in his faith? Presumptuousness. Just the idea that we have self-confidence in ourselves, our own intelligence, our, our wit, our faculties, or our birth, our heritage, our good behavior, any of that stuff, that presumptuousness that we will be uh, accepted by God because of who we are. That's just a kind of self-righteousness. So is professing a biblical creed while living a worldly one. It is self-righteous to profess your faith in God and live a life that does not manifest that faith. This should be a wake-up call. Paul is saying something really hard. He's saying there are a lot of people who think they are sons and daughters of Abraham, but they're not because they do not walk in the faith of Abraham. And we should say to ourselves, I don't want to find myself on that side of the line. I don't want to be presumptuous. I don't want to be a person who makes a a profession of faith and does not practice the faith that I profess. It's another thing, too. If you look at the psalm, look at Psalm 32 and the way it describes the the gift. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It doesn't say lucky are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Lucky is the man. It doesn't say technically in no danger is the man but blessed. That's different. That's different. If you're one of those people, and there are a lot of us who primarily, when they think of grace and salvation, think of it as salvation from the consequences of sin. I don't have to pay for the bad things I've done. You miss this word of blessing, that there is a a positive, a gracious gift 
being given that is more than just safety from consequences, but is a restoration, a renewal of what we were made to be. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. If that is true, then we should live differently. Those who are blessed by the gift should live like receivers, not like earners. We should live like receivers, not like earners. Earning is not a bad thing. It's nice to go to work, do hard work for the glory of God, and when the time comes to receive the wages that you have earned. And that process teaches you important lessons about life. We can all think of examples of of people who have not learned those lessons, right? People who, out of laziness, out of uh, like a, a, a desire not to fulfill those responsibilities. There's things about the world they just don't understand how it works, right? There are things that if you had just gone out and done some good, honest work, you would learn some things that would really help you get along in life, right? Um, You're reluctant to say yes because it sounds like a trick question. It's not. I really do mean this. I really do mean this. There are valuable lessons that we learn in the process of earning something, like of receiving wages as our due, We're meant to do this. We're meant to work. We're meant to earn. It's all good. And and that process of, of holding down that job, of doing that work well, teaches us valuable lessons about the way that the world works. With hard work and perseverance, you can provide for yourself. That's one. That's an important one. It's good to learn. The thing is, though, Receiving a gracious gift teaches lessons too, but they're different lessons. Different lessons. When you cash a paycheck, you learn something about self-sufficiency, about responsibility, that sort of thing. When you receive a gracious gift, you learn a lesson that is hard to put into words. But it's something like anything is possible. Anything could happen. If unsuspectingly someone gives you an amazing gift like whether it's a pile of cash or a new car or or an old car or any good thing that you weren't expecting especially when it comes to you it's like a solution to a problem that you didn't think you had any other answer for there's a joy there's a euphoria that comes along with that because it seemed impossible. And now because of this gift, because someone has just given you something, it's like all bets are off as far as reality is concerned. Like You're supposed to be self-sufficient. You're supposed to earn your way. You're not supposed to get things that you didn't work for, but then suddenly somebody gives you something that you never could have had apart from a gift. And it's like, wow, maybe, maybe it's possible to receive what you didn't work for. Maybe it's possible to enjoy what you could never earn. Maybe the rules of reality are not what I thought they were. Maybe sometimes it works differently and and all bets are off. That's a lesson that you learn from being a receiver, not an earner. And that's a lesson that as believers, we need to learn. Because what we've been given is something we could never have possessed on our own power, could never have worked hard enough in order to receive as our due. And if we have this thing, then we of all people should feel 
blessed. There's no telling what could happen if this is true. If God really is who he is and he really does keep his promises, it might be that any debt can be paid. It might be that any sin can be forgiven. It might be that anything that's been turned upside down could be set right again. Any of that is possible suddenly if we live in a world where it's possible to receive these gifts from God by faith. Earners understand how the world works, but receivers know, in the words of Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. But the world works the way it works until it doesn't, until God does what God does, the power that he has and changes everything. And when you see that, you start living not as a person who's earned everything he has or she has. You start living as a person who's received. That's different. You live with gratitude. You live with compassion for other people in the hope that they might receive what you have received as well. No, they don't deserve it, but you don't either. If it could happen for you, it could happen for anyone. Anything is possible. Specifically, if you're living as a receiver, not an earner, then don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Abraham feared. Our father Abraham was made a promise by God, a promise that he would have this great inheritance. And when Abraham thought about the promise, there was just one problem. It seemed like really good news for this guy named Eliezer of Damascus because he was the heir who would inherit everything that Abraham was promised because Abraham did not have an heir. So it's like, great promise, God, but it doesn't extend beyond my line. And this worried Abraham. It troubled Abraham. And so God came behind that and says, don't worry. Eliezer of Damascus, sorry, Eliezer, but he's not going to be the heir. You will have a son. You will have a son. It wasn't a reasonable thing for Abraham to expect. It wasn't a reasonable promise for him to look to, put hope in, and yet he trusted in God. Moses says that trust was counted as righteousness. That's the event. That's the event that we've been talking about. A promise was made to Abraham, an unlikely promise, a promise that a smarter guy maybe wouldn't have put too much stock in. But Abraham believed his faith, cast out his fear. He believed. He set those fears aside. It was counted to him as righteousness. You are a fearful person. So am I. We fear the end of blessings. We know we have it good. We know by historical standards, and even by standards comparing people in the world today, we all have it really, really good. And yet we fear that it won't last. We fear that it won't be enough. We fear that there will be nothing to pass down to the next generation. We know God's promises. But is it reasonable to believe that these promises will come true? we look at the world around us, we look at the next generation, we look at everything that's going on, is it reasonable to have hope that these things will be so? 
The answer is no, it's not reasonable. No, if Abraham is not your father, then it would not be reasonable at all to expect any of these things. But if he is, if Abraham is your father, if you walk in the faith of Abraham, anything is possible. And you have reason to hope. No reason to fear. Follow in the steps of his faith and know that with God, all things are possible. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.